0: is an Odyssey original
1: this is KX in depth I'm Rob Archer and I'm Charles Feldman Jane Leno is now in the hospital the former Tonight Show host is in stable condition following a gasoline fire he sent variety of statements saying he's okay and just needs a week or two to get back on his feet now TMZ reported that it happened in his car garage at his home in Los Angeles. Leno, of course, is known for having a classic car collection. We'll go in-depth into how old cars can be dangerous. The wait continues to find out who is going to win the L.A. Mayor's race. But should the wait take this long? We look into why the results are so slow to come. And the University of Virginia, now mourning the murders of three football players during a mass shooting... The accused killer? A former player himself. President Biden has met with China's leader on the
2: sidelines of a big economic summit. We can go in-depth on in the weather. The two sides are closer to easing, simmering tensions. A Saturday night live appearance has gotten Dave Chappelle into some trouble. He is accused by some people now of anti-Semitism. And Nike is going to start selling sneakers that aren't real. And your cat might just like you after all. We're going to talk about a new study.
1: And I think you can actually buy the sneakers that aren't real Mm -hmm. with money that isn't real either. This is a brave new world. Yes, it is. We start, though, with the news about Jay Leno. Larry Prince is executive editor with the DetroitBureau.com, which covers the automotive world. And he's very familiar with classic cars. Larry, thanks for being with us. So we don't, of course, know at the moment which car in particular Jay Leno was working on when it apparently went uh, on on fire, but he does have, as I'm sure you know, a, a large collection of of very classic automobiles. Is there a particular risk in in working
3: on those? Um, not really. Um, it's it could be anything that happened could have made it happen. Um, you're talking about a. Machine that has both gasoline and electric systems in it, so could have something could have something electrical have sparked it possibly, could have could a fuel leak, um, say leaked on a warm engine part and started it possibly, gasoline is actually fairly dangerous. I know we don't think much about it. Um, accidents, especially involving vehicle fires, are relatively rare given the vehicle population at large. But it is still highly flammable, Um, and that's something to keep in mind whenever you work on a car.
2: I had a nightmare once, uh, and it has stayed with me for many, many years, that uh, I had come home from work, parked my car in the garage, closed the garage door, got out of the car, and the next thing I know, the garage was in flames. And uh, I woke up in a sweat. And that's kind of stayed with me. So I'm paranoid about cars and garages. And then when I hear this story about uh, Jay Leno, we don't know a lot of details yet about a fire. My first concern is, you know, a fire in a garage with cars, you've got gas tanks there and gas tanks could explode. So right. um,
3: how bad would that have been? It could have been very bad. Uh, I would hope that his system had a spring, his garage, as big as it is. Would have a sprinkler system in it. So that would mitigate any risk of that sort. Keep in mind that electric cars can catch fire too. Lithium ion batteries are like people. They don't like to get too hot or too cold. But when they get too hot, they have caught fire. And we all know there have been news stories about cars catching fi- electric cars catching fire in garages from the batteries. Um, it's whenever you have any kind of flammable fuel to power a vehicle, you're going to have this happen. So is there
1: a a kind of lesson perhaps that people should draw from this unfortunate incident with Jay Leno and his classic cars so that when they decide if they don't know much about cars, although he did apparently, but if they don't, what's the lesson, if any, they should take from this?
3: Well, especially working on an older car, if there's an issue with fuel leaks um, in a particular way it's designed, it pays to know what you're doing. And it pays to know about the car you're working on. Um, um, Even someone like Leno may not know everything about every car that he has. He has quite a large collection. But odds are he probably did. It can just happen, even to the most knowledgeable and most experienced of us. So it just calls for care.
2: All right. Thank you so much for uh, taking some time with us today. Larry Prince, executive editor with the DetroitGuro.com. Of course, our thoughts are uh, with Jay Leno.
1: Uh, as we get more details, we'll report them. Right now, though, Karen Bass has extended her lead over Rick Caruso in the L.A. mayor's race when it comes to the ballots already counted. But why don't we have any clear idea yet about a winner? with us is Rafe Sunshine, uh, the political analyst and executive editor of the Pat Brown Institute for Public Affairs at Cal State L.A. Uh, Rafe, thanks for being back with us. My pleasure. So I I know that the line we always get, and it it does sound uh, certainly uh, plausible uh, from the folks who are counting it, is we want to be careful and we have to sort of dot our I's and cross our T's and and all that stuff. Um, That being said, It does seem as if an election held in the 21st century on a Tuesday, by the following Monday, we should have a pretty good notion of who did or didn't win, or if it's going to end up being statistically so close that we would need a recount. Shouldn't we?
0: I don't think so. I mean, we are in a state where every voter, every registered voter gets a vote by mail ballot. The overwhelming majority of voters use the vote-by-mail ballot, and unlike voting at the polls, they have to take each ballot, check the signature, take it out of the envelope, handle it carefully, put it into another pile. Whereas if in the old days when we used to vote at the polls, we could know very quickly. This really – this has created a different kind of drama. I You know, it's taken me three election cycles now to actually start to get used to this and enjoy it a little bit so that you don't know everything the first night, and you actually sort of watch the votes come in. It's like watching the water on the beach come in, and then it adds up, and you have to be patient. I'm not a patient guy, but I'm developing a sense that I learn more about the electorate by watching it take a little longer.
2: Well, we also live in an era of of conspiracy theories, and, and not just conspiracy theories, but conspiracy theories that have led people to violence, and waiting this long and leads changing back and forth that leads some to to promote and believe conspiracy theories now it's not reality's fault that people believe in conspiracy theories but maybe we could do something to keep that from happening what could we do in this case I had a a friend of mine uh, kind of come up with the idea of what if we don't release any figures until, say, 70 percent of the, the counting is in. But that might make things go even longer, right? We wouldn't even begin to know, even on election night or for a few days, well, who's in the lead? We don't know.
0: Well, with all due respect, I think that would create a lot of conspiracy theories because the stakes of that 70 percent would have like a week and a half to build up. We're only at about 67 percent in L.A. County even right now. You know, what the county registrar does is you can actually watch the counting go on. They have all kinds of transparency. People are volunteering to work in the polls. And let's face it, the conspiracy stuff has not been as widespread this time. As it was last time, and last time it was partly after the election, where people were going back and saying the election had been stolen. This was a pretty sedate election by the standards of a conspiracy-laden period. People are conceding when they lose. They're cheering when they win. It, It actually looks, dare I say, a little like a normal election.
1: But we made a trade-off, didn't we, in exchange for, I mean, for example, a lot of places use electronic ballots. You go to the to the polling station, and yes, that means that you don't have as many people mailing in, but you go to a polling station and you, uh, you cast your ballot electronically, so it's tabulated pretty much instantaneously, and that's been used for years now successfully in many other countries, and in some parts of this country, in fact. Uh, so would that not be a better solution than the one that we came up with, which is we sort of opened the floodgates. Anyone can send it in by mail. And as you just said earlier, you end up having ones that kind of, you know, they come in days after Election Day, although they may be postmarked by the right time. You have to double and triple check the signatures and and all that other stuff. Wouldn't it be better to use a system that other countries find quite acceptable?
0: Not a bit, because what we're doing in California is we're making it more possible for registered voters, not anyone, but registered, verified voters to vote. And as a political scientist, I have to say the more the merrier. If they're registered to vote, we should do anything we can to make it possible for people to vote. And if the price of that is that I have to have my patience tested for a week and a half, which, trust me, it really does, it really is work for me. Uh, I just have to get used to it. And that is a price, I think, worth paying. I think we want young people to vote. I think we want people in communities that haven't participated as much to vote. And vote by mail is a very safe, very clean. It doesn't lead to any of the things conspiracy theorists talk about. It's legit, and it gets more people to participate. What could be bad about that?
1: Well, to go back to Rob's point a little bit earlier, what, what what's the sense then of having this sort of, you know, on Monday, so-and-so is ahead. On Tuesday, nope, nope, no, the other person is caught up. (laughs) On Wednesday, nope, nope, it looks like the other one. I mean, that's the stuff that does feed into, and maybe we'll be fortunate, and it won't this particular election, but you know as well as I do, that is the stuff that makes people who are so inclined to believe in conspiracies say, ah, you see, my candidate was winning on Monday. What happened that all of a sudden on Tuesday they're losing?
0: I don't think you can design a system that causes people to think that our very respectable voting system in the United States is unfair or is not working as described. No matter what you do, even if you go back to people going to the polls, people will still say there's something wrong with it. So if you have to face the fact that that's going to happen, why not use a system where more people can legitimately participate? I'm not inclined to give in. To people saying that their conspiracy theory is right, and we have to redesign our whole voting system so that the next time they won't say it's it's fair, when they probably will say the same thing next time.
2: Uh, very quickly, um, so we've got early voting, right? We've got uh, vote by mail ballots. We get early voting. Uh, would it help if we had earlier counting and maybe uh, begin counting a big batch of votes as as they begin to come in, and then hold that total back until uh, after election day?
0: Well, that's kind of what halfway that we do here, which is that they are allowed to get the the uh, numbers all lined up, ready to go as soon as the polls come down. And those are the numbers that you see, at least in part, after the polls close at 8 p.m. Some states don't allow you to do like Pennsylvania. Their legislator prevented them from doing that and then complained that it took so long to put out the results. At the end of the day, you know what I don't miss? I don't miss turning on my TV years ago and finding out the election is over because it's been projected for somebody five minutes after the polls close. I feel like I got robbed of something. So I guess I'm leaning into this drama that I get new results. I sort of watch the trends. I figure where they're coming from. And by the way, we're almost over. By this week, we're going to know who the new mayor is going to be. We may know by today or even tomorrow.
1: Ah, optimistic as
2: always. There he goes. Thank you so much, uh, Rafe Solensheim, political analyst, executive director of the Pat Brown Institute for Public Affairs at Cal State LA. This is KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. President Biden had a big face-to-face meeting today with China's leader Xi Jinping. It came on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Bali, Indonesia.
1: The White House says the president objected to what he says is China's coercive and increasingly aggressive actions toward Taiwan, so can the U.S. and China avoid another Cold War of sorts? With us now is Shazad Kazi, managing director of China Beige Book International. Shazad, thanks for being with us. Is it? Thank you for having uh, me back. Is it uh, premature, inaccurate to refer to the current relationship between China and the U.S. As as a Cold War is it is it not that cold yet?
4: Yeah, I don't think that the Cold War framework is going to be very helpful for anybody in describing the geostrategic rivalry which has started between the China and the United States. The USSR and the United States were not nearly as economically integrated as the U.S. and China are today. And as a matter of fact, at the heart of a lot of the problems that the U.S. and China face today is the fact. Uh, that they have this economic relationship, which is increasingly uh, turning into a national security threat for the United States. And according to at least some of the United States, is the result, is the direct result of of which has been widespread job loss uh, and destruction of the middle class and and so forth, especially as you heard uh, from the prior president, Trump, and and you still hear from many folks dealing with working class uh, uh, communities. And then so forth.
2: You know, it's kind of a non-situation because, you know, it's not like the U.S. and China are, are colleagues are cooperating, although we do have to cooperate. And there is the sense that their economy depends partly on ours. Our economy depends partly on theirs. But we are in competition and the kind of competition where we're not both trying to get to the finish line at the same time. One of us wants to win. Who's better set to win right now, say, in the next uh, 10 years or so?
4: There's no question about the fact that the United States continues to dominate. Uh, and, and you know, look, the global financial system is, is under U.S. control and how it can be utilized uh, was very clearly seen when it came to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and how swiftly we were able to Uh, get Russia off the SWIFT system uh, and and put other banking sanctions in place. Uh, There is no question about the fact that the United States remains ahead technologically today. As a matter of fact, the whole issue right now that China is facing is that their own technological supremacy, if they were to ever achieve it in the interim period, depends very heavily on U.S. technological inputs, which is why they are very much opposed to the Biden administration's technology restrictions uh, that, that we've seen in recent months, recent weeks
1: i I want to for a second or two, to take this, perhaps, if we can, from China's point of view. Uh, they think uh, that the United states and and our Western allies, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is my understanding, that that we're all sort of in a conspiracy to hold them back, to keep them from taking what they view as their proper place in the world as a superpower and as an economic power equivalent to and perhaps even at some point exceeding that of the US do they have a a valid point there if my interpretation is correct
4: the chinese framing of the uh, the the issue here uh which which is exactly what you've said uh, is is somewhat disingenuous uh, in my opinion because what that does is and what the chinese side has done is an unwillingness to recognize uh that over the last uh you know 30 odd years uh, that they have indeed in, in indulged in very serious amounts of intellectual property theft. Uh, they have done, of course, other things like forced technology transfer that everybody is aware of. Uh, but that, more importantly, that they are increasingly utilizing the technologies to which they have access for military purposes uh, or or in in dual use capacities and capabilities. Uh, and I think if if they were to recognize this, uh, the U.S. response would naturally seem uh, a lot more uh, a lot more. Sensible from the United States national security standpoint, even if China were to be unhappy with it.
2: All right. Thank you so much.
1: That is uh, Shazad Kazi, managing director of China Beige Book International. Comedian Dave Chappelle is now facing accusations of anti-Semitism. Now, this comes after his opening monologue over the weekend on Saturday Night Live. He uh, read a statement denouncing anti-Semitism and then joked, saying, and
2: that, Kanye, is how you buy yourself time. He then went on to talk about the perception of Jewish people running Hollywood, saying it's not a crazy, t- uh, it's not a crazy thing to think, but it's a crazy thing to say out loud. Nate Miller is a communications strategist, crisis PR expert and founder and CEO of the PR firm Miller INK. Thank you so much for joining us. So did uh, Dave Chappelle in this in this atmosphere where people are very sensitive to this right now because of uh, Kanye West in in large part. Did he skate up to the line or did he cross over the line?
5: You know, I think it, it, it depends who you're asking. And I think there's the valid question is, was he making a valid critique of cancel culture or or was he making a problematic or hateful statement about Jews? And I think there's two questions you want to ask to understand that. The first is, what was his intent with the monologue? And the second is, what will the result be of the monologue that he gave? And I can just speak as a Jewish person. Um, and, you know, I'm a communication strategist as well, but you, you get a feeling. It, it, and it's hard to prove intent, of course, but you get a feeling that there's a sense of hostility and anger towards the Jewish community, um, including for perceived sins that we haven't actually committed. Um, and he makes his statements about that are obviously true, like that, you know, that there's a lot of Jewish people who happen to work in Hollywood with others that are definitely false, like um, that, he you know, that, that the claim that the Jews are blaming black Americans for persecution that, that we've experienced around the world. Um, so I think. You know, there's there's a lot to, to ask there, um, and you know, and and the Jewish community, no one in the Jewish community is is saying that um, that that we are that others are, you know, that Black Americans are responsible for every persecution. But what we are saying is that people uh, need to be held accountable uh, for how they use their platform. And um, and I think the more important question, of course, is is what what is Dave. Chappelle's what's the result going to be of what he said? And I do think that there's 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 valid and, and serious concern that he mainstreamed some ideas, he gave voice to ideas that lead to conflict, persecution, and in some case even violence.
4: Um Nate, I mean, so, let, let, yeah.
1: let me let me ask you, stop you and and ask you something to go back to something you said at the beginning about yep. that one of the key questions to ask is is intent. But yep. but is it fair to ask an audience to know what the intent of any comedian is when they deliver what the comedian might consider to be rightly or wrongly, you know, biting satire or parody or comedy. Is it fair to shift the burden and say, well, we need to know what the intent is? How would you
5: know that? I think it's, it's very, very hard to get at intent. And I think uh, Dave Chappelle is a great satirist. He, he likes to push the limits. He likes to provoke. He likes to say things that make people uncomfortable. And I think that is generally a good thing. But if you're asking me why people are upset, there's a sense when you watch that monologue that, you know, a lot of it is not said in a spirit of jest, a lot of it is not said in a spirit of jest, I tell, but there is a sense of hostility underneath it um, that feels real for him, whether or not that is the case. And I do think um there was a couple lines that I that I think were problematic, but beyond it, it's just more the general feeling. And 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 the bigger the bigger question, I think the bigger concern for folks is um, you know, that that. Anti-Semitism is a real problem in America today. You know, people, you know, here in Los Angeles, we had a shooting in the North Valley, JCC, where people were murdered, we had people killed in Jersey City, in in New Jersey, um, the Tree of Life synagogue people, you know, there's 1000s of hate crimes against Jews reported in the US every year. Uh, I, my kids go to Jewish schools, we go in every day through armed guards. um, And that is not normal for most Americans. And so the question is, is, is is what Dave Chappelle said going to contribute to folks who are going to do things that are crazy? Or, is it more generally going to create uh, more conflict between communities, particularly the Black community and the Jewish community, which have a historically very important um, relationship? Um, so, so, so let me, was, but but let, a, let me, but let, a, let but me, let me, let me
1: ask, because I don't want to run out of time, and I want to cover yeah. as much ground as we can. Um, does NBC then? Because I also read a lot of criticism on social media directed at NBC, because presumably. Uh, Lauren Michaels, the producer of the show, uh, and others uh, know in advance what any host, let alone somebody as controversial as Dave Chappelle, is about to say. So there has been a, a lot of criticism that I've read thus far aimed at NBC for allowing that and for normalizing was a word that kept coming up, anti-Semitism. Do you think that that's a valid criticism of the network?
5: I think it's an important question for folks to consider. Um, and my hope is that it can be a learning moment. You know, I, I think Dave, Dave Chappelle makes an important point about cancel culture and that people are afraid to, you know, I, I think it's bad for the culture when people are afraid to say what they, what, you know, and, and there's there's a chilling of speech, but I do think there's a, there's a sense of, there should be a sense of responsibility um, around uh, certain issues like this. And also, I think a lot of what Dave Chappelle said was just factually wrong. Um, And, 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 you know, and so there's there's I do think that if somebody had done an edit of that monologue, I think it could have could have, you know, hit the mark, you know, um, had the same effect without some of the pernicious stuff that I think people are really concerned about.
2: You know, it's it's definitely true that that we live in a different time right now, because, as I recall, watching uh, Monty Python way back when one of the sketches they had was uh, Adolf Hitler had uh, moved to England and was running uh for an office, uh, for political office in England, but pretending not to be Hitler, even though everybody knew he was Hitler. And this was just what? Just a few decades on from World War II. Uh, that was considered very funny. Uh, maybe a little uh, cutting edge, but very funny. And then I thought, would that fly today? And not because we're not as funny as we used to be, but because we are more sensitive, because we have seen violence committed in the name of some of these ideas that comedians use as jokes that have leached into the conspiracy theory community and become a means of violence. As you say, you know, Jewish uh, synagogues have been targeted and people have been killed over some of the stuff. And maybe we're more sensitive because of it right now. No. So is is the violence the cause of the cancel culture or is the cancel culture the cause of the violence?
5: I think there's a, there's I think the the question of is what Dave Chappelle said, um, you know, reasonable, correct, well advised, and should he be canceled are two different questions. And I'm I'm certainly never going to be one who's going to advocate for people to be canceled. I think that's a mistake. I do think the Monty Python thing, it's a different thing. It's a it's it's, it's a, that's a different genre. You know, we had the producers. There's been a lot of jokes around Hitler and things, and I do think that it's okay to joke about the Jewish community. It's just a question of. Um, what is your intent of doing so? And are you are you representing total falsehoods that are used as a, you know, as a means, you know, to to harm folks and to to, to push people apart and in some cases to commit violence? It's a, it's a really, you know, that's, that's a you, know
1: you, you mentioned uh, the producers, which, of course, is Mel Brooks is Jewish. So that does raise the question. If if Dave Chappelle were Jewish, would his monologue been considered acceptable?
5: Uh, I, I don't think so. Um, I, I don't know. Like I said, there's a, there's there's a handful of things in that monologue that were that were really problematic. That I think if you excised them, it would have been it would have been better. Um, Jew, Jewish comedians get in trouble all the time for things that they say about the Jewish community, or um, <laughs> so. I, I I don't know that it would have changed so much, um, but I do think. Um, Perhaps it would have given people more of a sense of the benefit of the doubt. The, the, the thing that I left watching that was, you know, what was his intent here, and does he really have a problem with Jews? Is is he hostile? You know, and I think if, for you know, for D- Dave Chappelle has an opportunity to clarify potentially what you know what his intent was with that, you know, and we'll see if, see what he does.
2: All right. Uh, thank you so much. Nate Miller, a communications strategist, crisis PR expert and founder and CEO of the PR firm Miller INK. And that is really something that does depend on subjectivity because it depends on who the audience is and how they respond and what they think about what Dave Chappelle said. And in a way, maybe that's the intent of his kind of comedy is to make people think about their own responses to it
1: well or of course the other way of looking at it rob is is that that uh, are there certain things even in comedy that that shouldn't rely on subjectivity your word Uh, are there some things that some lines that shouldn't be crossed regardless of who's delivering it and what the audience or who the audience is i don't know
2: it's art and culture and there's never a clear line to be drawn
1: You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Everybody needs shoes. Some people love
2: sneakers. They buy the latest versions, even collect them, and some sneakers can be worth
1: a lot of money. But would you buy virtual sneakers? You know, sneakers that don't really exist. They're just a, an image, basically, on the Internet. We're going to find out if there's actually demand for that. Nike has just announced the launch of Dot Swoosh, it's a new Metaverse Marketplace platform. Even that's hard to say, Metaverse Marketplace platform. <laughs> Three times fast. Yeah. People will be able to collect virtual shoes and apparel products to wear on the platform. With us to explain, I'm glad someone will, how this works is OG Arabian Prince. He's an expert in the Metaverse and co-founder of MD Dow, an online healthcare organization. He's also, by the way, a rapper, music producer, and founding member of NWA. OG, thanks for being with us.
6: Uh, thanks for having me.
1: So, can you briefly explain uh, how this works? Because uh, I think I I got that right in the setup. Uh, this you would go online to dot swoosh, but not to buy an actual physical pair of sneakers that you know would be delivered to your door, say in a week or two. These don't really exist.
6: No, they don't exist. It's an NFT. Um, it's a piece of artwork, and from what I understand. Some of the actual, you know, fanatics or Nike heads will actually be able to design their own NFT on the marketplace for their avatar.
2: Okay, dumb question time. How do I measure my virtual (laughs) feet to make sure they will fit in my virtual shoes?
6: That's actually a good question, but I'm sure they'll allow you to make your feet the same size as your avatar's (laughs) feet. You can change that too. You got it.
1: So now, now yeah. but, but these these virtual uh, sneakers are, are I mean, some of them I, I read are going to be fairly cheap, like 50 bucks, but some I presume are not. So is the idea that people would buy these virtual sneakers and and run up the price as an investment and then trade? Is that the long term goal?
6: Yeah, because that's the same thing that's happening now with. The air jordans and the old kobe's and you know some of the sneakers that you get right now um the first let's say the jordan ones if you own a pair of original jordan ones from when michael jordan actually put those out years ago they're going to be worth exponentially tens of thousands of dollars as opposed to a remake of that jordan one so the same thing with the nft if you get a version one of a limited edition Jordan NFT or a custom NFT, it's gonna be worth a lot of money. And sneakerheads are gonna wanna be trading for that NFT because there's only a limited number
2: of them. All right, so it's kind of like you know buying land in the metaverse. It's land inside this metaverse, and and you're paying for it so that you can say that it's yours. Same thing with these uh these virtual sneakers. Uh, down the road, will be will there be an opportunity to say uh, I want to get on there and I've got a really creative idea for some sneakers that I design my own and I make them in this virtual world? Would I be able to at some point have them manufactured for the real world?
6: You know what? I've heard rumors about that, and I'm thinking on is that some amazing creative artists will design something that they take that design, turn it into a real pair of sneakers.
2: I think we're losing uh, we're losing a little bit. Uh, can you uh, basically repeat no. what you were saying about making yeah, these virtual that sneakers again. real? Yeah.
6: Yeah, like uh, an artist, like some artist is going to make an amazing design, and Nike's going to look at that and go, "Wait a minute, here's something. Let's put this out as a real shoe."
1: Yeah, I was going to say that 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 Nike, which was a pretty uh, smart company when it comes to business, I, I would imagine that there's more to it than just being a virtual store for a virtual product. That that this, I would think. It has a long-term goal of, of being a kind of of a, a, a sort of a, a a doorway in which once you go through, as the years unfold, leads to actual merchandise that you would get or or you know or buy from Nike. Wouldn't that make sense or no?
6: Oh yeah, one thousand percent. And I can actually see them making a new Air Jordan shoe and allowing you to buy the virtual version of that shoe as well. So once your shoe wears out you still have the virtual NFT of that limited edition shoe that you bought forever. That doesn't go bad.
1: So wait a minute. So you, you would, your actual sneaker would be like in the, in the garbage because today you're no longer good, but the fake, <laughs> but the, yes. the not on. real one lives on forever.
6: There you go. And I think that's what they're banking on. And, you know, I'm a sneakerhead. I've got, I, I need help. I really do need help. I've got a closet full of sneakers that I buy and I'll, You know, pull out a pair and say, hey, I want this new pair. So I'll take the old pair and sell them off and get the new pair. And I think people are going to do the same thing with these
2: NFTs. Well, just think about if you're buying virtual sneakers, you could literally buy an infinite number of virtual sneakers and never, ever run out of space.
6: There you go. All right. There you go. But thank- you can run on the hard drive space.
2: <laughs> yeah, you yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, O.G. Arabian Prince, an expert in the metaverse, co-founder of MDDAO, an online healthcare organization, also rapper, music producer, founding member of NWA.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm still sort of getting my head around the fact that you can buy the, the real version and the, and the virtual version. The real version wears out. You toss it the mm-hmm. the virtual one lives on forever it's kind of like my uncle irving he's long gone but he lives on forever in Spir- <laughs> <laughs> same same thing same okay. basic idea uh coming, coming you up. could revive him and resurrect him <laughs> yeah, in yeah. the metaverse well you know cats are known for being aloof and uh, snooty they kind of thumb their nose at you ignoring you and uh, letting Hello. you letting you know they're far superior and that you should be grateful to be in their magnificent presence that is the stereotype but a new study from researchers in France finds
2: that cats don't really ignore us they react to people talking to them who is doing the talking and how they're talking so if you're the owner talking to them in what scientists call cat directed speech they will acknowledge it in their own cat way Dr. Rebecca Greenstein, the veterinary medical advisor for Rover.com. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, so when you say cat-directed speech, when scientists uh, refer to that, uh, what does that mean exactly?
7: So it's really, it's a high-pitched voice that's a little bit similar to how we would talk to babies. So it's not just normal speech. Cats seem to react to the specific um, intonation of your voice
1: now is that because i mean i'm guessing it has to do with frequency of of, of the pitch of the voice uh, because the cat couldn't possibly know or maybe they could your in your intent is is that a fair guess
2: uh, it's
7: sort of speculative because it might be beyond the the scope of the study itself however What it's thought to do is I think you're on to something because the um, the intensity, the pitch is probably on some level reminiscent to how they used to interact with their mothers. And as their primary caregivers, we are now replacing that role for them.
2: So when we do the uh, uh, my wife calls it baby talk uh, with the cats, (laughs) uh, they're really responding to that. Uh, How does that go? It, it goes well.
1: No, no, no. Uh, I, I mean, how, give me a... I'm not
2: going to do it. No, no, I, what, what's i How do you talk to
1: your cat? I you...
2: usually talk for my cats. Yeah? I explain what my cats are saying and thinking.
1: You, you interpret for your yes, cats?
2: Yes, I am. And I will say that the older cat has an extremely foul mouth. <laughs> and I don't know where he got it from. He maybe watched some R-rated movies. I don't know. But something must be done. So... Um, and you say, uh, when we talk about cats responding in their own cat way that means that they do hear us, they do acknowledge us, but they make a conscious choice to either respond or not, right?
7: It's sort of reframing what we think of as a response. So the key here is subtlety. So cats will respond, especially this study does seem to support it. They will respond to cat-directed speech, but it's not necessarily the way a dog will. The wagging tail and and an obvious approach sometimes it's subtle like the flick of an ear or the widening of a pupil um and that but that counts that is a response
1: but is it so subtle because the cat really doesn't care that much and so it's kind of it's like doesn't want to bother actually you know wagging its tail so it kind of like winks at you
7: it's it's a great question, and I think this study is really one that should have cat owners rejoicing because it's true. <laughs> We've been dealing with a bunch of ice queens and a bunch of ice kings, all of us <laughs> cat lovers. So we're going to take the winds where we can get them. Uh, they just respond in a, a in a language that's very different than you know we can't evaluate them the way we do dogs. Dogs are very expressive genetically they're bred to be more expressive cats are responding but you have to really look for that response it's okay it's subtle
2: now i have had both dogs and cats uh and so i i, I feel the difference between them and uh, love them both but i will say i did have one cat that i had for many many years a very long uh relationship and i began to pick up on the cat's language, uh, how it expressed things that it wanted when it, when it was about food or when it was about pay attention to me or when it was about I don't feel good. Uh, and I, I do believe that the cat had picked up on my language in a way, too, and seemed to understand when I was saying, you know, it's time to eat, here's some food, uh, what have you. Although cats generally respond well to that.
1: It sounds like you had very extensive conversations with yes, your cat.
2: I was a very lonely man. Uh, so uh, I have a cat now who who obviously loves me, but really, really loves me when I'm doing something important like a business Zoom call. What is it with cats that that realize, hey, you're doing something and it's not about me?
7: So I'll tell you a secret. I uh, in doing this interview, I had to uh I had to bribe my new puppy with uh with a chew toy. So I don't know, he he seems to want to interact at all the wrong times too. <laughs> so it's really a question of where um you are placing your attention. Cats pick up on that. So if you have if you're directed towards the screen, if you're poring over important documents, they pick up on the fact that you are paying attention to something it's not them, and they will literally plop themselves in the middle of your field of attention.
2: That's exactly right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, does this seem to be uh, a universal trait, uh, to, no matter what the breed of the cat is, or or do some cats respond differently than than other cats?
7: So, it is a smaller scale study, and it can be hard to extrapolate. But I think what it, it does sort of touch on is it is kind of the study as cat lovers were waiting for that shows they're not just being a lube. It's just it's it can be you know. It's, it's not as overt as in dogs. Um, But the other thing that's important is cats do crave um, human attention in a way that we always seem to, um, Overlook dogs are treat motivated. They love you because you give them treats. But um, not to get controversial, but cats actually do prefer human interaction over other rewards like food or toys.
1: See, that's interesting because every time I've been to, if I've been to someone's house where they have a cat, or I pass cat in the street and the cat's staring at me, staring me down, I always get the sense that the cat finds people in total contempt.
7: <laughs> <laughs> I have met those cats myself. In fact, many of them come to the vet. <laughs> so. <laughs> We don't always see the best side of them, but it also touches on another point. Cats are notoriously difficult to study in a lab setting because their stress levels, you know, it's hard to really catch them when they're in their element. Um, But this is part of what we're trying to decipher about them.
1: Well, they're they're high strung, right?
7: Uh, They are, it's just moving them into a lab environment can raise their blood pressure and um, change so much of the behaviors that we're trying to study. So they are really difficult to research, which is why they seem so mysterious to us, even still.
2: Could part of that, very quickly here, could part of that be a serious question uh, that cats are more individualized? Because of the dogs that I've known, uh, there was not a wide range of 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 behavior uh dogs react kind of this way almost all the time whereas all the different cats I've had and I've had a few were all highly individualized from each other they ha- all had different ways of doing things i could never compare one cat to another they all did different things is that true
7: well, I think it's that, uh, you know, larger studies, larger scale studies really need to be done in order to draw sort of sweeping conclusions. But anyone who owns a cat will tell you there are no two cats that are alike. We sort of work for them, not the other way around. Um, and dog people will be up in arms saying, well, my dog is unique and different. So it's really, you know, that study still needs to be done. But I think anything that furthers our understanding of animal behavior and human-animal interaction, to me, is a study worth talking about.
2: All right, thank you so much, Doctor Rebecca Greenstein, veterinary uh, medical advisor for Rover. Uh, dot com.
1: I, I still, I still want to know, Rob. I'm kind of curious how you mm-hmm. communicate with your own cat. You know, I you would have to get a few drinks in the bee before yeah. I. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's more of a tongue in cheek kind of a thing. Yeah, like, like uh, go ahead, give me like uh, like the cat will tell me where to go, uh, <laughs> and and add add the epithet hippie to it for some reason. I don't know why, <laughs> but uh, that's uh, uh, that's my cat. All right, that was uh, KNX In-Depth. We will be back uh, tomorrow at 1 p.m. for more In-Depth.
1: After a little cat nap.
2: After a little cat nap.